going to read God's word together. Um, Luke chapter 11, verses 14 to 22. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask for your help and your blessing now as we come to this part of our service where we hear your word. We've just read it together. These words, these very words that Jesus said have come off of our lips. And now I ask, Father, for your help to understand them, for your help to, to really get what is being spoken here. That this morning as we ponder what it means for Jesus to be the offspring of Eve, that we would be left in a spot of worship. Rise, O oh Lord, and do your work here this morning. I ask this in Jesus' mighty name, the name above all names. Amen. You may be seated. Did you catch those words we sang just moments ago? Rise, the woman's conquering seed. Bruise in us the serpent's head. It's not often that we sing that fourth verse of, of Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And I suspect it's because that line and some of the other lines in that fourth verse like second Adam from above. Those lines don't make sense to most people. The truth is those lines don't make sense unless you're familiar with the storyline of the Bible. But I hope if, if you are here and you've been with us this fall, from the beginning, from September up until now, I'm hoping that as we sang that line, you got it. You said, I know what this means. I know what this is talking about. 
Because seed is just another way of translating the word offspring. Same, same word in Hebrew. Many translations have the word seed in the verse from Genesis that that line from the song is referencing. Genesis 3.15, where God said to the serpent, to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring or seed and her offspring or seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise or crush. Sorry, I got this mixed up. You know, he shall bruise or crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's a passage that we looked at back in September when we talked about the fall of Adam and Eve into sin, right? That was one of the most important chapters in the storyline of the Bible. After creation, when God made everything, he made it good, he made it perfect, and yet Adam failed in his job and he allowed the serpent into the garden. And that serpent deceived his wife And then Adam listened to the voice of his wife. He didn't lead her back to the Lord. He let her lead him away. And they both let Satan have dominion over them. And they ate the fruit. They disobeyed the one command God had given them. And God promised them several things on that day. But one of them was a promise that was just dripping with hope. And it was this promise that one day the serpent, this deceiving serpent was going to be destroyed. Now, remember what we talked about. God could have destroyed the serpent right then and there, but instead he said, no, I'm going to let one of the woman's offspring do it. And what God says here, if you think about, if you think about a serpent being on the ground and this picture of Ural bruise his heel, but he will crush your head, the picture we get is that there's going to be an offspring of the woman that will come. And, and the serpent is going to try to strike at that offspring. And, and, and his strike will land. He will bruise the heel. But in that very act, that heel, that bruised heel, is going to come down upon the serpent's own head and crush it. The offspring of Eve is going to destroy the serpent. And back in September, we talked about how for centuries, Jewish and Christian readers of the Bible understood that this is the first time that we're introduced to the Messiah. This is the first time we find out that a Savior is coming. Someone is going to be born who's going to destroy the deceiver. And as we saw, as we walked through the story after that point, that it's because of this promise that the word offspring becomes such an important word in in, in the storyline of the Bible. Because it shows up again and again in the story. We saw how even right at the beginning, Eve had a son. And and she thought that maybe this son is the offspring. And then he was killed by his brother and we were disappointed. But yet all throughout the Old Testament, we see how this line of offspring gets traced from Adam to Noah to Abraham to Jacob to Judah to David And all along the way, as as each significant person steps forward, we're asking the question, could this be it? Could this person be the promised offspring who's going to crush the head of the serpent? And yet each time, as we saw, we we were painfully, painfully disappointed. But the promise kept coming up again. 
God reiterated his promise to Abraham that his, he would have an offspring, a very key, important offspring. And we saw how that, that, that traces back. It's talking about the same person. And then when God comes to David and promises him an offspring, and we saw how that connects back. It's talking about the same person. So all of the hopes of this whole story have been riding on that this offspring is going to finally come. And the writer of Hark the Herald Angels Sing understood what we're here to celebrate this morning, that the promised offspring of Eve was finally born, and his name is Jesus of Nazareth. And today we're going to be seeing how Jesus perfectly fulfilled this promise, that he is the one who crushed and who is crushing and who will finally crush his ancient enemy, Satan. And so how we're going to be doing that today is we're going to be walking through the Gospel of Luke. So if you have your Bible with you, you can turn to Luke, because we're going to be thumbing through a number of key passages in the Gospel of Luke that speak about Jesus and his mission to conquer, defeat the devil. Now, the first passage we're going to look at in Luke's Gospel is one that you might not expect. It's one that's appropriate a month away from Christmas because it's a passage that we often read at this time of year. It's from Luke chapter 2. The familiar passage talks about the birth of Christ. Listen to these words from Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone upon, shone around them. And do you remember what we learned last week about angels? How do people react when angels show up? How do you think these guys are going to react? And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, what do angels always say first, almost without exception, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, that's important, a Savior who is Christ, Messiah, the Anointed One, the King, the Lord. That is very likely a reference to the divine name, Yahweh. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, a baby, an offspring, wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. Stop right there. What comes to your mind when you hear that phrase, that word host? Multitude of the heavenly host. In many of our songs and, and, and pictures and tellings of, of the birth of Christ, I think we very often picture this to be like a men's choir. You know, they've all got matching robes with little holes cut out in the back for their wings. And that's what they were. What we often miss is that the word host is a military word. Host it means essentially the same thing as army. That changes things a bit, doesn't it? And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly army. Gives it a bit of a different flavor, doesn't it? Than just a men's choir. This word host, army. And that's what's going on, by the way, in the Old Testament when God speaks of himself as 
the Lord of hosts. You see that phrase come up. We're actually going to sing it in their final song this morning. The Hebrew word, Lord Sabaoth, Lord of hosts. That means Lord of angel armies. The Lord with an immense army at his disposal. The angels are an army. That's what Jesus was saying when he said to his disciples when he, the night that he was betrayed. He says, do you not think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? That is a military word. Legion is a, from the Roman arrangement of 6,000 soldiers. He's pointing again to the fact that angels are soldiers in an army. All throughout the Bible, if you read, I did it this week. I just did a search on the word angel in the Old Testament. And it's hundreds of times, so it just, just skimmed through. And from, from just my quick skim, it seemed almost that most of the times that angels show up, it's in the conflict of war or battle. They're there as soldiers doing battle against God's enemies, either seen or unseen, right? There's that amazing passage in Daniel about about the angels doing battle with these spiritual principalities in charge of Greece and Persia. And, 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 and it, it reinforces this idea that angels are soldiers, they're warriors, they fight. And so on this night that the king is born, his birth is announced by an army who shows up and praises God. Now, I'm not sure if, I've never been in an army, but I would imagine if I was in a war and the army that I was fighting against was really, really happy, that would be bad news for me. And that's what we see here. This army here to announce the birth of Christ is praising God. And so what I'm suggesting for us is that this picture shows us that the birth of Christ is a military invasion. The offspring of Eve has come with his armies to do battle against the serpent. And this sets the tone for everything that's going to come. The next place we see this come up in Luke's Gospels at the end of the next chapter, end of chapter 3, where Luke records Jesus' genealogy. Now, genealogies are one of those places in the Bible we very often skip over like because we don't think they matter, but they really do. And I'm not going to read you this genealogy, but this genealogy traces Jesus' physical ancestry all the way back to Adam, which means who? Eve. Now, this genealogy of Jesus is very different than the one that Matthew records in his gospel. And that's led many scholars to, to come to the conclusion that Luke here is recording the genealogy of Mary. And there's reasons why Joseph's name is mentioned. I won't get into that. I can, I can explain that. And some of this is, we don't know for sure, but there's some good reasons to see this as referring to Mary's genealogy. So think about what this genealogy is showing. Physical descent of Jesus. Jesus was born of a woman. Physical descendant of Mary. Yes, conceived by the Holy Spirit, but he was born of a woman. And this line traces that all the way back to Eve. Do you see? Jesus really is the offspring of Eve. He really is an offspring of the woman that God promised. And so it's so important. These are details in the story that we miss until we read it with these, these eyes. That right after showing here that Jesus is the offspring of Eve, at the end of Luke chapter 3, the beginning of Luke chapter 4, we read this. Okay, offspring of Eve, now read this. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. See, offspring of Eve, confrontation with the devil. 
For years, this, this passage baffled me about Jesus being led out into the wilderness. Because, I mean, we know from, from what the Bible says that God doesn't tempt anybody. And we know Jesus himself taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation. But here's Jesus, right after being baptized, full of the Holy Spirit, being led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days. What's going on here? There's a few things that are going on. One is that Jesus is reenacting the story of Israel and their 40 years in the wilderness. He's reenacting that. But that's, that is one side of this that we're not going to discuss this morning. But the, the other angle of this that we need to see is that the Son of God is going to war. The offspring of Eve is intentionally beginning his ministry with a head-on confrontation with the serpent. And like Tim mentioned for us last week, there's, there's some really strong parallels between the ways that Jesus was tempted by Satan here and the way that Eve and Adam were tempted by Satan in the Garden of Eden. There, there's some strong parallels there. But what we see here is that unlike Eve, unlike Adam, Jesus resisted Satan. He fought back. He clung to the truth of God's word. He didn't let it be twisted by Satan. This is the Garden of Eden moment for the second Adam, for the offspring of Eve. And I wonder if, I wonder if panic sees the kingdom of darkness in these moments as Satan and all of his legions realized that for the first time in history, their game wasn't working. Jesus was not caving in. For the, for, for the first time, this wasn't happening. Just think about where, what kind of a spot Jesus was in. He was exhausted he was hungry, and he was alone. Those are some of the things that, that people will tell you. That's when people are most vulnerable to temptation. That's when people are most vulnerable to suggestion and to giving in and to, not, and to giving into sinful habits and things like that. And here's Jesus, exhausted, hungry, alone, in a spot of complete weakness. Most of us would have given up a long time ago. And Jesus instead digs in and answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Just think about this. Think for a moment about your own life. Think of how easily you have given in to temptation over and over again. Think of how easy you've made it for Satan to deceive you. Think of what little effort Satan has needed to put into leading you astray. And now look at Jesus, weakened from 40 days of starvation, and Satan puts in front of him these subtle little temptations that many of us might not have even recognized were sin in the first place because they're, they're so subtle. And yet Jesus says, no, no discussion, no negotiation, no wavering, solid, unflinching strength. And Satan has no option but to back down. Marvel at Jesus in these moments. Be amazed at the strength of your Savior. Verse 14 tells us that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And if you look just a little bit further down that chapter, in chapter 4, you'll see the very first miracle that Luke records for us. And what is it? It's a confrontation with the enemy. Luke chapter 4, verse 31, And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, 
for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Do you hear that? This demon, one of Satan's soldiers, a member of the opposing army, is quite comfortable being in a synagogue surrounded by a bunch of religious people. But then Jesus shows up and he's terrified. He fears that his judgment day has come. This is something we're going to talk about in the end of December, about how Jesus is the one that God has given judgment to. And he's terrified. He fears that this is his judgment day. And he says, have you come to destroy us? He knows who Jesus is, the Holy One of God. He knows that the Holy One of God is going to crush the head of Satan. And he's a member of Satan's army, and that means he's in big trouble. And so now listen to this, verse 35. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. The idea of casting a demon out of someone wasn't entirely a new idea to these people. If we look at Jewish history from around this time, there were Jewish exorcists who believed they could do this. But, but, but it's described that they had these just kind of weird rituals that they would use, and it was very strange, and, and it was always a question whether it actually worked or not. So the people had never seen anything like this. Jesus just says, come out of him. He's giving orders to the other side. He's ordering around his enemy's soldiers, and they listen, and they come out of him. It just obeys him. Never before had anyone showed this kind of authority over the forces of darkness. Now this idea comes into even clearer focus that Jesus has complete authority over the forces of darkness. It comes into focus in chapter 11, the passage that we read at the beginning of this message. Now as we get there, please know we're skipping over a few things. We're skipping over... That time where Jesus cast the legion of demons out of a man. And this man, who everybody else ran away from in fear, is afraid of Jesus and comes whimpering like a little dog on his knees before him. We're skipping over chapter 10 where Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. There's, there's so much. But our passage in chapter 11 contains some of the most important things that Jesus said about this topic. So the background here to our passage in chapter 11 is that once again, Jesus had, had commanded a demon to, to come out of someone. And people were amazed again because it just did. It listened to him. But by this point in the story, Jesus has some enemies. Jesus has some people who don't like what he says. Jesus has some people who aren't so happy with some of the other things he's saying. And so they are trying to explain away these miracles that he's doing. And so they're saying it's by the power of Beelzebub or Satan that he is casting out demons. It's not by God's power. That's what they're saying. Jesus isn't doing this by God's power. 
And so what Jesus does in, in, in verses 17 to 19 is show just what a silly idea that is. Like, that's just ridiculous. How could Satan cast out Satan? Like, why would, why would he even do that? Like, isn't Satan the one that wants this to happen? Like, how, how could Satan cast out Satan? Jesus, Jesus uses logic, which he does very often, in verses 17 and 19, just to show this is just a ridiculous idea. This is just silly. But then after making that point, Jesus says this in verse 20. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. There it is again. Do you remember that phrase that we talked about in the past couple of weeks? The kingdom of God, so important. If Jesus is able to cast out demons with this kind of authority, then that means he He's the long-promised king. He's the offspring of Eve. He's the offspring of Abraham. He's the offspring of David. And if he's the king, then that means that the kingdom has arrived. And then Jesus makes this amazing claim about himself in verse 21. He says, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. This is a parable. Who's the strong man that Jesus is talking about? Satan. Who is the one stronger than the strong man who attacks him and overcomes him and is dividing up or plundering his spoil, Jesus. In, in the parallel version of this saying in, in Matthew, that's where Jesus uses the word plundering, and that's where he also talks about the fact that he has bound the strong man. I don't know if you've ever heard of that idea of binding Satan or binding evil spirits. It's never something that we do. Bible never says that binding Satan is something we do. It's something Jesus did when he showed up on the scene because he is stronger than the devil and the devil can't do anything to stop what Jesus is doing. The picture Jesus gives us here is that it's like he's broken into Satan's house and is stealing his stuff. He says, that's mine now. I'm taking that. And Satan is powerless to do anything to stop him. Because Jesus has overpowered him, ripped his armor off, given him a complete shellacking. Satan has been completely overwhelmed by the power of Jesus, and there's nothing he can do to stop what he's doing, which is taking people, right? That's the spoil here that Jesus is dividing up and saying, I'll take that, I'll take that. It's people, just like Colossians 1.13 says, transferring them from the domain of darkness into his own kingdom. Is that one of your ideas of Jesus, a thief, a pillager, a plunderer? That, that's who he is, plundering the house of the devil, taking back what's his. But everything we've seen this morning is just preparation, just preparation for the final showdown. Because even though Satan was defeated by Jesus in the wilderness, and even though Satan is hopelessly overpowered by Jesus again and again and again, even though Satan's Soldiers are taking orders from Jesus and he can't stop this from happening. He hasn't given up yet. And we read back, back in chapter four, out in the wilderness, in verse 13, it said, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until 
an opportune time. In other words, he wasn't giving up. He was waiting for another chance. And that chance came on the dark night that Jesus was betrayed and led away to be killed. In Luke chapter 22, we read how Satan entered into Judas. And that's what led Judas to go out and to arrange for Jesus to be betrayed to the authorities. And we read in Luke 22, verses verse 52 to 53, there in the Garden of Gethsemane, after, Je- after Judas had planted that awful poisonous kiss on Jesus' cheek, and the other disciples had all abandoned him, and once again, Jesus is alone, this time in a garden. It said, Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. In other words, this is the hour of the power of darkness. This was Satan's hour. It's very likely that in this whole process of entering into Judas, of getting Jesus arrested and killed, that Satan thought he was finally winning. Maybe he thought that if he couldn't get Jesus to sin, that he would have to settle for shaming him. Right? We forget in the first century being crucified was absolutely shameful completely would have destroyed Jesus' reputation. We know it, for a short time, destroyed the faith of Jesus' followers. Maybe that's what Satan was settling for. Maybe he was settling to try to kill him before he could actually rule like a proper king. But he had no idea that he'd been outmaneuvered. You know, you're playing chess, and you're moving your pieces and you think you've got it and you move your piece and the other guy looks you in the whites of the eyes and says, checkmate, because you just walked into his trap and that's what's going on here. He had no idea that Jesus held the upper hand, that as Jesus was being whipped and beaten and led up the hill and nailed to a cross and hung up to die, that this was not his plan, this was God's plan. And what looked like Satan's greatest victory was actually the very thing that sealed his doom because it was the death of Christ that destroyed the power of Satan. So do you see what's happening at the cross? Satan reaches out to strike at Christ and he strikes him all right. He bruises that heel. But in that very action, that heel comes crashing down on his own head and Satan's power is destroyed. Let's think for a few moments about how that actually happened. How did Jesus conquer Satan in his death? Well, the f- first thing we need to understand is that Satan's power, his, the actual power he has, is actually quite a bit more limited than, 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 we, than we give him credit for. Right? So it's not like there's some religions where there's a an, an evil being and a good being, and they're kind of like yin and yang, always in conflict. No, no, that's not what's going on in the Bible at all. 
I mean, you read the first couple chapters of the book of Job. Satan's on a very tight leash. The main way that Satan works is just by doing what he did with Adam and Eve. He lies, he deceives, and he tempts people to sin. He gets us to do the bad stuff, which is sinning, right? He can't make us sin, but he tempts and lies and allures us into sinning. That's why Revelation 12.8 calls him the deceiver of the whole world. That's what he does. He deceives us to get us to sin. And then when we have sinned, he turns around, turns coat, and becomes our prosecutor and, and accuses us before God. That's what Revelation 12.10 says, that he is the accuser of our brothers who accuses them day and night before God. That's what Satan does. He accuses us. He deceives us into sinning, and then he accuses us for that sin. So if you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, you'll know that in the line, the witch in the wardrobe, the white witch, how first of all, she allures Edmund with Turkish delight, tells him lies, flatters him, and then gets him him to commit sin and then she turns coat and says you deserve to die and she makes sure that he gets the punishment that he deserves that's a picture of exactly what satan does he's a deceiver and then a prosecutor and as a prosecutor he's got a watertight case airtight case because he's right we've sinned we did it we chose to bite the fruit we chose to commit the sin and we do deserve God's punishment. But on the cross, the offspring of Eve stepped into our place and took that punishment on himself. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And then right before he died, Jesus said, it is finished. The sentence has been served. Justice has been satisfied. Our sins have been paid for in full. Just like in Narnia, Aslan dies for Edmund. And so we have nothing left to fear. We don't need to fear God's judgment anymore. We don't need to fear death. We don't need to live with a guilty conscience. And that means that the accuser of the brothers is out of a job. There's no sins left that Satan can accuse us for that have not already been paid for. There are no fears left that Satan can manipulate us with that haven't already been answered in the death and resurrection and promises of Christ. Satan is out of work when it comes to the people of God. Listen to how Hebrews chapter 2 describes this. It says, Since therefore the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, he himself, that's Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy. As you hear that word destroy, picture the heel coming down on the head of the serpent. He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death are subject to lifelong slavery. Right? That's the idea, is that because of sin, because we fear judgment, we're enslaved to the fear of death, Satan can manipulate us and accuse us, and yet Christ paid for it all, and he won the decisive victory over Satan in his death, and then ultimately in his resurrection. So he did it on the cross. He crushed the serpent's power, and he won the decisive victory. Now, this is different 
but from saying that Jesus won on the cross the final victory over Satan. Let me explain this to you. The final victory where Satan is ultimately destroyed is still in the future. And we read about it in the book of Revelation. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them and was thrown into the lake, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The devil will be vanquished finally and will never be able to tempt, deceive, oppose, accuse again. And when that, when that happens, that's when Genesis 3.15 will finally be fulfilled in all of its fullness. That will be Christ's final victory. That will be when the war is over. But what I'm showing us today is that on the cross, Jesus won the decisive victory in this war. That's a military phrase, right? A decisive victory. That means it's, it's a victory that decides the outcome of the war. It's the beginning of the end of the war. It decides who the winner is going to be. So think, if you're familiar with World War II history a little bit, think about D-Day in World War II, right? The Allied invasion of Normandy. When the Allies successfully invaded France, the war wasn't over. There was still fighting to do. There were still bullets being shot, but the war was essentially won. It was the beginning of the end for Hitler and his forces. There was no longer any question who was actually going to win this thing. And so it is with Christ's victory at the cross over Satan. It's the decisive victory. It was the fatal blow, right? Satan's bleeding out and he's going to die. His doom is sealed. He's been stripped of all his authority over God's children. He's got no real harm that he can do to us. And he tries to make us forget this. And there's some battles for us to fight, primarily to remember what Jesus already did for us. But the war is essentially already won. Jesus is victorious. So you see here what we're describing again is this already but not yet thing. He's already won. The war's not yet over. And that's where we live. In the time between the already and the not yet. In between D-Day and V-E-Day. And so Satan is still around and he's still an enemy. 1 Peter 5.8 tells us, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. So do you notice there what it tells us to be? Sober-minded and watchful, not afraid. Never told to be afraid of him. We are told to be careful. And then we're told to resist him. Because, like James 4, 7 says, resist the devil and he will what? Flee from you. So in other words, just like Jesus in the wilderness, when we resist the devil and we say no, and we fight back with the word of God, the sword of the spirit, the devil will flee from us. 
because he's got no real power over us. Our sins have been paid for. We've got no reason to feel condemned. We've got no reason to fear death. We belong to the snake crusher and we're protected by the king and his armies. Now there's so much more here to say. And in the new year, in February, we're actually going to spend a whole morning talking about this idea of spiritual warfare. And what, what is spiritual warfare? And what does it look like to live between the cross and the casting of Satan into the lake of fire? What, is it, what does it actually look like for us to do battle with the enemy? We're going to look at, in that morning, a verse from the book of Romans, which a lot of us have sung at camp and never actually understood. Romans 16, 20, where it says that the God of peace will soon crush Satan. There's that Genesis 3.15 reference. Under whose feet? Your feet. It's amazing. And so that's a teaser. Look forward to that. But for our purposes today, I just want us to focus on Christ. I want us to focus on his victory. I want us to focus on the way that Christ fulfills God's ancient promises. I want us to marvel at Jesus today. I want us to worship our snake-crushing Savior our Satan-pillaging Savior, the one who God promised to send, the one who we've been waiting for from the very beginning, and the one who finally came. I want us to be amazed that, that unlike Adam, unlike Noah, unlike Abraham, unlike jo- Jacob, unlike Moses, unlike David, unlike Solomon, unlike all of these men, our Savior perfectly resisted the temptation of the devil. He didn't let Satan get anything on him. There's no dirt on Jesus at all. He didn't give in a single time. And then in his ministry, Jesus proved over and over and over again that in this contest of strength, he had far overwhelmed Satan, way stronger than him, no contest at all. And then it was in the weakness of death, when Satan thought he had the upper hand and reached out to strike at Jesus, that he found that heel coming down on his head. Because on the cross, Jesus destroyed his power for once and for all. And so we need to be wary, but we don't need to be afraid. We've been set free and we can walk in the victory that Jesus purchased for us on the cross. Now, just a word. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, the sobering truth is that you do have something to fear. Satan still does have power over you. He can accuse you. He can manipulate you with Fear, that's legitimate. But it doesn't need to stay that way. Today, you can turn to Christ for safety, for salvation. God's word promises, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. That's the promise that any of us can grab onto today. We can turn to Christ, the serpent crusher, and find safety in him. So so if you're not sure if you're safe from the serpent. Please come talk to me or talk to someone here that you know knows Jesus. We want to help you. But if you do know Jesus this morning, please know. Think about your week. Think about what's ahead of you this week. You can walk out into whatever's ahead of you this week with absolute safety, absolute confidence, not because you're strong, but because you belong to the one who is. And he's if you know Jesus, you have been snatched from Satan's domain and transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved son, Colossians 1.13. And Satan ain't breaking into that house to steal you back. It can't happen. And we're going to end this morning by just celebrating. We're going to sing a rousing old hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. 
the prince of darkness grim. We tremble not for him. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Does ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, Lord of hosts, Lord of angel armies, his name from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. I'm gonna invite the team up and as they do, I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna sing this song together to celebrate the victory that we have in Christ. Jesus, you are the promised one. You are the one that God was speaking of when he said, that the offspring will come and crush the head of the serpent. And Jesus, as we look at your word, we can see exactly how you did that. So this morning, Jesus, help us to worship you. Help us to trust you. Help us to walk out of here into our week with absolute confidence in your overwhelming power. Lord, deliver us from fear. Deliver us from a guilty conscience. Help us to confess our sins to you and, and to know that Satan has nothing on us if we belong to you. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray if there's people here in this room who know you and yet who have perhaps lived for years under condemnation, guilt, fear of death, that this truth of Jesus would deliver them from that today, that they would walk out of here knowing that in you they're free, knowing that you have won. Jesus, help us, your church, to live in that victory this week, to live in the light of your kingdom. Jesus, we thank you so much for what you did. Don't let us forget it. Don't let us forget it. Amen.